0: My Govanin, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek and in this video I'm going to give a brief overview, brief, may not be so brief, but a brief overview of the Silmarillion, kind of get a little bit of the background for those of you who aren't familiar with it, obviously spoilers are in play, uh, but if you want to kind of get an idea of what the Silmarillion is all about, you don't want to have to go read the entire book then this video will hopefully give you at least a basic idea of what goes on in the Silmarillion and why that's relevant to Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. So basically that's kind of the point here. I'm not gonna get into a whole lot of detail in a, in a lot of the stories, but I have done some other videos that touch on some of those stories in a little bit more detail, so you can check those out. The Baron and Luthian video that I've done and the Numenor video that I've done both cover some of the stuff that the Silmarillion gets into. So. Uh, also, the story of Kulervo where I touched on the story of Turin Turumbar, that's also part of the Silmarillion, so you can kind of get a little bit more information from some of those other videos I've done, but this is going to be more like a broad overview just so that everybody out there who may be interested can kind of get an idea of what the Silmarillion is and maybe finally give you the reason to go out and buy it to, you know, read it for yourself, so without any further ado, let's talk Silmarillion. <laughs> First off, I should point out that the Silmarillion is actually based on the oldest material that Tolkien ever worked on. Tolkien, uh, as as an academic, of course, was very much into language, and his original passion that spurred most of the creative things that he did in his life was for language. I mean, he enjoyed languages immensely and that provided the impetus for a lot of the things he did. The Silmarillion is essentially the outgrowth of a mythology he attempted to develop for the purpose of giving a background to the languages he created. So, the language is really the, the rock bottom part of everything that he did, and the Silmarillion is just kind of his way of giving a, a history, so to speak, to the languages that he created. And those languages are primarily the Elven languages that um, today we know of as Quenya, Sindarin, and uh, a few others. But those are the two major ones that you run across in *Lord of the Rings*. So he started really working on the Silmarillion stories in the World War One era, where he had, you know, he had already started developing his languages, and he started developing the stories to go with them, and as a result, they're very heavily influenced by his experiences in the war, and that's one thing you'll find in the Silmarillion. Almost the entire Silmarillion is about a war, a giant, long, centuries-long war between the Elves and Morgoth, but I'll get to the details of that later. But that's really the background of where the Silmarillion comes from, and you can get a better overview of how the development of the Silmarillion went by getting into uh, the books that Christopher Tolkien has published in the History of Middle Earth series. Uh, There are several books, actually, that touch on the Silmarillion. The first two in the series are the Books of Lost Tales, Part 1 and Part 2. Those are the very earliest versions that Tolkien put together. There's also two later books in the series. Uh, One is called Morgoth's Ring and the other... The other escapes me at the moment, but there's at least four volumes that really deal with the original stories. There's also a couple others that aren't as directly related to the stories, um, in, in prose at least. There's one that's The Lays of Beleriand, which kind of gives a poetic narrative to a lot of them. So you can get a lot of different information about the Silmarillion from all these places. The Silmarillion itself was published by Christopher Tolkien after J.R.R. Tolkien's death, because Tolkien himself never finished putting these stories into final form, much like he never finished putting his languages into final form. The stories developed over time. You have the addition of Numenor, which I covered in a recent video. Uh, That wasn't part of the original mythology, but it got added in, and so that ends up in the Silmarillion. Uh, But Christopher Tolkien basically took the most developed versions of the stories that his father had written and kind of compared that to what's in Lord of the Rings to make sure that everything is you know it all jives together and 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 is coherent and nothing contradicts each other and he put that together in the form of the Silmarillion and he had to put you know some things together to to fill some gaps as well he had to add some of his own uh material into it but the Silmarillion that we have now is mostly Tolkien's writing in a mostly finished form with some elements of Christopher Tolkien that he had to add in. So that's kind of what you're getting. You're not getting pure J.R.R. Tolkien, but it's still pretty darn close, and it's, it's really amazing work. It's very different from The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but it is extremely important for your understanding of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. So with that kind of background as to the origins of the Silmarillion, now we can get a little bit more into the stories. So the way I've always thought of the Silmarillion is, if you had to make an analogy to what we would think of in in our own history, or, for lack of a better term, religious history, uh, if you think of the Lord of the Rings as occurring sometime in the very distant past, uh, say maybe slightly pre-New Testament era, what we would as Christians think of as, you know, roughly year zero and forward, The Silmarillion is kind of like the Old Testament of J.R.R. Tolkien's mythology, because it actually starts with the creation of the universe. Just like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the Silmarillion, the very first thing you get is the one, Eru Uvatar, who brings into being these angelic beings called the Ainur, and then with the Ainur's cooperation, he has them more or less seeing into existence the universe as we know it. So, you know, just this is a mythical prehistory of our own world. J.R.R. R. Tolkien was very much a Catholic. He was a monotheist. And so he is bringing that element of the Christian worldview into his own mythology by giving it a creation story that is very consonant with a Judeo-Christian worldview. So that's how the, the story starts, literally... From the very beginning, God creates the world, and in this case specifically with the assistance and cooperation of the angels that he creates. Except one of them doesn't really fully cooperate. One of them is named Melkor, and he is the greatest of all the Ainur. He has, as Tolkien puts it in the Silmarillion, a share of all the gifts that were given to all of the Ainur. So, I mean, some of them have, you know, particular gifts that others don't really share in, but Melkor has a little bit of all of them. Melkor becomes very prideful, wants to kind of do things his own way. He starts seeking out the uh, the source of Ilu- Eru Iluvatar's power to bring things into existence, thinking that he can find it and take it for himself. Uh, And during the, the music that they make, which brings the Earth into existence, or through which Eru Iluvatar brings it into existence, he starts to kind of develop his own musical themes that are in conflict with the original theme developed by Eru Iluvatar. And as a result, you get some discord in the music, and you end up with Eru Iluvatar trying to take that theme that Melkor creates and rework it into his own theme and it, it's, again, kind of floats into the whole Judeo-Christian view of no matter what evil happens, God can turn it into something good. It's the same idea, but it's just being done in terms of music. So this happens about three or four times, and finally Eru Iluvatar cuts it off because it's gotten so chaotic that the music doesn't even make any sense anymore. But out of the musical themes, he uses those to create the world. So, and... It's interesting because the different strains that Melkor throws in, you get um, elements of different natural things that we know of that um, basically Tolkien uses this as an explanation to explain things which have kind of like a double-edged sword quality to them. So one of the other Ainur who in Silmarillion is known as Ulmo, he's kind of like the Poseidon of the mythology. He's He's got his his realm, so to speak, is the water. That's, that's what he is specialized in, for lack of a better term. So Ulmo is all about water, and Melkor, in his music, was all messing around with things with extremes of heat and cold, and as a result of that, the way that Eru Iluvatar turns that into something that's still not just wholly bad, is you get mists and steams and you get snow and ice. So, there is a beauty to snow and ice, but it's still not necessarily all good because it's really cold and it's not comfortable. So, there's that idea of him taking things that Melkor was trying to ruin and still making them at least somewhat good, you know, out of that. So, that's just one example I wanted to throw in. So, anyway, after the creation of the world, several of the Ainur and some lesser angels as well, who we end up knowing as Maiar, uh, they all enter into the physical universe to kind of be its guardians and shape it and bring it to the full fruition of the vision that they are shown by Eru Iluvatar, because he actually shows them kind of like a full history of Middle-earth, but then he takes away the vision and then they're just left with the very beginnings of it, and they have to kind of bring it to the full fruition of what it's supposed to be the Ainur that enter into Middle Earth become known as the Valar. And Melkor, of course, is one of the Valar, but he's usually not counted among them because he turns evil, just like Satan does in in the biblical account. So you've got, if I remember correctly, 12 good Ainur or Valar, and they all have kind of their own realms. You've got one who is, um, as I mentioned, Ulmo's for water. You've got one named Aule, who is kind of like Hephaestus from Greek mythology. He's a a smith or or artificer, Uh, you've got Orome, who is a hunter, you've got Monwe, who is um, kinda like the, the Lord of Winds, he controls not only the winds, but the eagles. You've got Varda, who is also known as Gilthoniel and Elbereth, and she's got many names because she is the one who creates the stars, and that's really important to elves, and so they give her lots of names, and she's kinda like the most highly venerated of all the Valar, Uh, amongst the elves, at least. So, I mean, and then you've got several others uh, that I don't really want to get into right now, but the point is you kind of got sort of a Greek mythological or or even Norse mythological element that gets included into this, which makes sense because Tolkien is writing a mythology for England, right? And so it's got a—it needs kind of that northern flavor to it. It can't just be Judeo-Christian. It wouldn't make sense, really. So, Anyway, you get the creation of the world. The Valar enter into Middle-earth along with several other lesser Ainur who become known as Maiar, and they start to try to develop uh, the world as they were supposed to. And then things start to get a little bit more interesting, and that's what we'll talk about in the next segment. So as the Valar start to try to you know bring the world into a you know more of a concrete shape and and bring its history to what it's supposed to be according to the vision that they saw they're constantly running into conflict with Melkor and he's you know he's constantly messing up everything they do they try to build two huge lamps so that they can see what they're doing and create light for you know the beings that they know are going to come into existence. Melkor tears those down, which kind of destroys a lot of the, the earth that existed and, and damages it. You get a lot of this back and forth. Eventually what ends up happening is the Valar take one piece of land far to the west, and it's called Valinor, and those are the, or it's also called Amon, but it's the Undying Lands. That's where they live, and that's where basically you have, you know, you can't be there if you don't have immortal life, so that comes into play later. Men can't ever go there, but Melkor stays in the more eastern parts of the world and kind of tries to make it his own dominion. The the other Valar just kind of finally give up on trying to, Keep the entire world safe from Melkor because it's really impossible. And in Valinor, they basically just raise huge mountains on their eastern coast so that there's really only one gap, one way that Melkor can get in. Oromë and some of the other Valar, but Oromë particularly, mm-hmm. still travels in Middle Earth. And Oromë, specifically, he's a hunter, so he, you know, he he travels extensively. Um, you have animals and things like that at this time. Melkor corrupts some of them. Um, and when Oromë comes through, the the evil animals or the creatures that Melkor has corrupted, they they tend to flee from him because he's hunting them. But he, uh, one, one time when he's out doing his hunting, he finally finds the elves who are Eru Iluvatar's firstborn. They know that there's a firstborn and a secondborn. So, You've got the Elves finally coming on the scene, and they they are found at this lake, whose exact location remains something of a mystery. Um, and the first thing they see are the stars that were recently created by Varda. So that's why they're the Star People. In fact, the name Eldar, which is the name that they gave themselves, means the Star People. They the Elves are the Star People. That's that's what their name actually means. So. Orme finds them, he returns this news to the Valar, and eventually what they decide is they're gonna bring the elves to Valinor because the the rest of the world is unsafe because of Melkor. Now Melkor, of course, also at some point finds out about this, many elves go missing. The theory is that's where the orcs come from, they corrupted, as uh, if you've seen the Peter Jackson movies, Saruman kind of explains that orcs were originally elves that were corrupted. Uh, there's been different versions of the story of where orcs came from, but that's kind of like the the best one that we have. And again, that has to do with the fact that Tolkien never really finished the Silmarillion. But long story short, Oromë brings, uh, and I believe some other Valor were involved too, but bring most of the Elves to Valinor. Now, many of the elves end up staying for one reason or another. Some of them are just overawed by the, the power and majesty of the Valar, and they don't really necessarily want to be around them all the time, and they don't necessarily fully trust them, and so you get some elves who are left behind. Now, I should mention here there are three, uh, three different families or, or houses of elves. There are the Vanyar, who are the High Elves, or the Light Elves, you have the Noldor, who are, um, for lack of a better term, they're the ones that are kind of most suited to alley. They tend to be better at making things, creating things, and that sort of thing. And then you have the Tellery, who are much more interested in music, and for those who make it to the ocean, much more interested in water and sailing. All elves have some draw to the ocean, but... Um, the Teleri especially end up becoming the best mariners and whatnot, and they also tend to be the best singers. So most of the elves who stay in Middle-earth of their own will are Teleri, and the others, the Vanyar and the Noldor, almost entirely go to um, Valinor. And then as a result of that, you have um, different branches of elves kind of doing their own things. The Vanyar tend to be the ones who are most loyal to the Valar the most, um, for lack of a better word, holy. I mean, if you think in RPG terms, they'd be the lawful good elves uh, in, in that sense. So, I mean, they're the ones who are kind of like the the real... The, they're just the, the good elves. I mean, for lack of a better term, there's really no easy way to put it. But the Noldor are always seeking more knowledge, more ways to create and do things. And that's where this thing really goes off the rails and the Silmarillion gets into the main part of the story. Because of the Noldor, the son, I think he was the first son, in fact, of the king of the Noldor, king might be really a bad word, I mean, each of the houses had kind of their own their own leader. The The leader of the Tellery actually stayed in Middle-earth, so they took a new leader when they went to Valinor, And then the leader of the Noldor, he married one of the... The Vanyar and their first son became; it ends up being Feanor, which means something like "child of fire." And the the reason for that is the the mother, when she gave birth, basically prophesied that he's his spirit, spirit, sorry, is so fiery and so passionate and active that she kind of gave up a lot of her life in in giving birth to him, and she didn't die, but she kind of just gave up living, and kind of went into something of a comatose state. And that was kind of a big deal, because nothing had ever died in Valinor before, and that was the first time anything like that happened. Feanor's father ended up taking another wife and having other sons, but Feanor was always his favorite, and Feanor is also the one who is most renowned in all of Middle-earth history as an artificer, and a person who could, you know, work with his hands. And that's important, because That's where the Silmarillion story really takes off. In Valinor, uh, one of the Valar, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, had created two trees, and the trees that were essentially the sun and moon of Valinor. There is no sun and moon yet in in Middle-earth. So the trees, there's one that's silver and one that's golden. And they kind of wax and wane in in terms of the amount of light they put out, kind of like the sun and the moon in our own world. Sun kind of controls the day and the moon kind of controls the night for the most part. So they act kind of similarly, but there's two points in the day where they're, you know, one is waning and the other is waxing and the the lights blend. And that becomes really important because it's, it's the time of day that everybody considers kind of the most holy, the most sacred. Feanor... Manages to capture that light in three gems that he calls the Silmarils, and that's where the story takes its name from because that provides the basis for the entire rest of the story. What ends up happening, the Valar at some point had also captured Melkor, brought him back to Valinor. This is around the same time that they found the Elves because they were they didn't want him to be able to ruin you know, anything more in in Middle-earth. And so they finally captured Melkor, brought him back to Valinor, and held him captive there. They finally let him out because he basically pretends to have reformed. And what ends up happening is he starts sowing discord among the Noldor, especially, because he can kind of... He plays on their desire for knowledge and things and gets them to uh, want things that they really shouldn't want, like more... Power is really the wrong word, but... He plays on their uh, desire to keep the things that they've made, and turns that into hatred for other elves. And eventually, he uses this to his advantage when there's a feast, and he ends up taking advantage of the fact that everybody's feasting to steal the Silmarils, and with the help of a giant evil spider named Ungoliant... Uh, poisons the two trees and then flees Valinor back to the main area of Middle Earth where he had had his realm before. As a result of this, Feanor and a lot of the Noldor, not all of them, but a good chunk of them, follow Melkor to Middle Earth and in the process kill a lot of Tellery and steal their ships, which brings a curse down on them uh, that they can't ever come back to Valinor. But they uh, follow Melkor to Middle-earth, and Feanor names Melkor Morgoth, or the Dark Foe. So at that point, you have the real beginning of the story, and the rest of the Silmarillion is basically about the war between the Noldor and Melkor, or Morgoth. And at that point, you get a lot of different chapters that cover a lot of different things, and I'll just kind of wrap those up very briefly in the next segment, and then finish up, because it's already getting really long. So as a result of the Noldor following Morgoth over to Middle-earth, you end up with a lot of elves who've left, the Valar who remain, the Valar and the elves who remain are all very saddened. The trees have died. As a result of the trees dying, they each have one bloom left, so you have one golden flower and one silver flower. Those are used to create the sun and the moon. So here we go with the, you know, the mythological explanation of where we get our sun and moon. And as the Noldor finally make it to middle earth you get the first moonrise and the first sunrise and their armies are able to really defeat a lot of the of Morgoth's armies early on because Morgoth's armies are co- totally dismayed by the sun and the moon the light from these and there you have the explanation of why orcs never really come out in sunlight so that they have an earlier victory there, and then they immediately kind of start squabbling amongst themselves because who's going to be the leader? Feanor ends up being killed in the in the initial battle. You have uh, different factions among the Noldor who are fighting with each other. They end up meeting up with some of the Elves who remained in Middle Earth, and they want to retain their independence. They don't really like the fact that they, that the Noldor have come back with Morgoth. They kind of blame the Noldor for why. Morgoth has returned to Middle-earth and made life horrible again. So you end up with a lot of infighting, and that's part of the curse that was laid on the Noldor as well, is that the fact that they would never be able to, you know, really avoid treachery amongst their own ranks. So at first they do kind of okay. They keep Morgoth contained. They're not able to directly assault him because Morgoth's fortress is just impregnable. I mean, he's basically got a huge underground network beneath a bunch of mountains in the far north, they can't get in, but neither can Morgoth really come out and attack them either. So it's kind of a stalemate for a long, long time. And of course, elves being immortal, they have all the time that they need. They, they can just kind of sit out there. Men eventually show up on the scene. Dwarves eventually show up on the scene. Dwarves, I should have mentioned this earlier, were actually the creation of Aule. Aule kind of got impatient about waiting for the elves to finally show up and thought he would just kind of hurry things along and create his own race that he could, you know, kind of bring into the world and not have to wait forever. Uh, Eru Iluvatar pointed out, you're kind of breaking the mold. You're not supposed to do it this way. Ale repents and he's about to destroy them. But then the Eru Iluvatar basically gives them real life of their own, showing mercy on Ale, and that's how we get the dwarves. And that explains also why they're very um, mountain-based and very skilled in terms of making things. They're they're built after Ale's own mold, so to speak. So anyway, you get the dwarves, and then you also... There's also some references to where the ints come from. You get a lot of the different explanation for where the origins for things are, but I can't really cover all that right now. The main point is... Several chapters in the Silmarillion are kind of dedicated to the initial wars between the Elves and Morgoth and kind of how that affects different parts of the of Middle-earth, especially those parts that are controlled by the Elves. Different factions of the Elves end up setting up their own kingdoms in different areas. You end up with um, different alliances that shift over time depending on who you know, (laughs) who thinks somebody else is being treacherous. Um, And then, of course, you get men. The men end up being kind of a mixed bag. You get some good men, some bad men. There's several different wars. Nobody really makes a whole lot of ground for a long time. Uh, Then you finally start to get wars where Morgoth has built up so much of an army and so much, um, you know, he creates dragons, creates being really the wrong word, but uh, he brings dragons into existence one way or another, he has the Balrogs, and various other things that eventually give him such an overwhelming advantage that he can finally sweep away the, the, what is essentially a siege on his own, uh, fortress. And you get a lot of epic events that come out of that, Um, but a lot of the wars are kind of backdrop for the more important main stories, in the Silmarillion mythology, and so you get a lot of the stories about the wars, and those are kind of told in more of a historical, uh, you know, you get the idea you're kind of reading a history book, these are the things that happened, and then what you get thereafter is kind of like little biographies that are attached to certain key individuals who are, you know, parts of those wars. And you get basically three main storylines that are kind of the center of the Silmarillion mythology. You have Baron and Luthian, you have Turin and Turambar, and you have Tuor and Gondolin. So the, the earliest of these is Baron and Luthian, After kind of one of the, the first initial wars where Morgoth really starts to make uh, a lot of progress, but doesn't really quite, you know, completely break free of the siege, he does start to control a little bit more of his own territory in the north, and as a result, Baron, who is a man uh, in, with his father Barahir and several other men, kind of become a band of outlaws in, acting inside Morgoth's territory. He ends up losing all of his companions, including his father, because one of them is caught by Morgoth and used as a, as a mole to get the rest of them. Baron escapes, eventually finds his way into one of the kingdoms of the Teleri, who had remained in Middle-earth, Middle which he shouldn't have been able to enter, but that's a different story, um, meets Luthien, who is the princess, the daughter of the king of those elves there, and then eventually he and he and Luthien end up recovering a Silmaril from Morgoth, which is, you know, an unheard of event. You know, they've they've attempted to take Morgoth all this time, and never been able to, but Beren and Luthien managed to get the Silmaril. That then kind of inspires a little bit more confidence in the elves. You know, Maybe we can actually pull this off. It it gives them a little more hope. And so they attempt to uh, start another war to to retake what Morgoth had taken. Unfortunately, Morgoth kind of is up, he knows what they're up to. And so the war doesn't turn out very well. And in that war, you have two men, whose sons end up becoming very important. One is Hurin, and the other is Huor. Now, Hurin is, um, his son is Turin, who ends up taking the name Turambar. His story is the tragedy of the entire Silmarillion mythology. Turin, uh, his his father Hurin, is taken captive by Morgoth, and, laid, and Morgoth lays a curse on him and his family. Hurin is forced to watch via Morgoth's own ability to watch kind of his his family's constant uh, tragic storyline and see all the nasty things that happened to them. Turin ends up going from one disaster to another, mostly due to his own impetuousness and and lack of self-discipline. But, you know, he goes from one thing to another. He tries to... uh, basically do a lot of his own thing against the the servants of Morgoth. He also ends up getting himself banished from a an elven kingdom because, well, he, he kind of self-imposed banishes himself because he assumes he's going to be banished. Um, and then he ends up traveling amongst different outlaws and different things like that. He, he constantly is changing his position where he is and never really ends up in a happy place. He eventually tries to find... Uh, find happiness in a, uh, one of the elven kingdoms of the Noldor, falls in love with the, with a princess there. Unfortunately, his own actions end up leading to the sack of that kingdom, and he loses her. In his search to find her again, he ends up being misled into then trying to search for his family, and then as a result of that, he loses his elven love, and then never really finds his family either. He ends up actually committing incest with his sister who he doesn't know because he's never really met before and she ends up losing her memory before he finds her. It's a long, convoluted tale that is just absolutely tragic, but it's, like many tragedies, it it is awe-inspiring in a lot of other ways. It's a very good story. It's just you know, if you're prone to tears I suggest having Kleenex handy. So that's how Turin's story goes. He eventually commits suicide when he realizes all the things that have gone wrong in his life, although he does get his revenge against the dragon who caused a lot of it. So, I mean, there's there's a little bit of good in there, a uh, little bit of bittersweet. So um, that's Turin's story, the main tragedy of, of the cycle. And then you have his cousin Tuor. Tuor is um, essentially taken as a slave uh, of the evil men who are serving Morgoth. He eventually escapes, makes his way to an old um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, The remnants of of an old elven kingdom that had been left behind by an elven king named Turgon, who went and founded a city hidden in a ring of mountains. Turgon had been instructed by Ulmo, who was the most sympathetic to the elves during all this period, to leave behind armor and weapons to be found by somebody later who would end up being a messenger to them that they should listen to. Tuor is led by Ulmo to this place, finds the armor and the weapons, ends up going to Gondolin, which is the hidden city, uh, with the help of another elf who, who was from there, who had been sent as a mariner trying to find his way back to Valinor to ask the Valar for help, but because of the curse that the Valar laid on him, they can't return to Valinor. They've made it impossible to navigate the ocean. Tuor, with the help of this elf who was shipwrecked, finds his way to Gondolin, uh, eventually... Um, Meets the king, of course. The king recognizes the armor and the weapons that he had left there. But like many of the elves, he has become so attached to what is created in Middle-earth that he just can't bring himself to leave it. So he he knows the prophecy. He knows all this stuff, but he just he decides not to actually leave. And then Tuor, basically, for lack of anything else to do, stays there to try to help. Uh, he ends up falling in love with the king's daughter, this is a recurring theme, men fall in love with elven princesses, Uh, but this one actually kind of works out, except for the fact that there's another elf there that was, um, he has a long backstory, but the main point here is this particular elf was also in love with the king's daughter, and so he hates Tuor for it, he eventually gets captured by Morgoth and used as a treacherous agent to discover where Gondolin is. Morgoth finds where Gondolin is, sacks it. Tuor and his um and the princess and those that, you know, were kind of in the know, take a hidden route, which Tuor had before prepared to get out of Gondolin in the case of just such an attack. They escape and go back to the shores, the western shores of Middle-earth, finally end up um having a son, or I don't remember if they had a son or a daughter, but anyway. Baron and Luthien's descendants, and Tuor and Idril, Kelebrindal's descendants, to Idril being the princess, uh, end up combining into one bloodline, whose ultimate um, kind of progeny ends up being Erendil, who does make it, with the help of the Silmaril, back to Valinor in the west, and asks for the Valar to help. The Valar finally do come and help. They de- defeat Morgoth and that's kind of the end of the Silmarillion cycle. And there's a separate section at the end of the Silmarillion where they explain Numenor and some of its history and whatnot. But that's kind of the basic overview, and I probably went into too much detail already, of what the Silmarillion is all about. You basically have a lot of historical periods that cover different things interspersed with more particularized biographical narratives and it's, you know, it's it's a very different style than Lord of the Rings because of that, because it's not all just one big quest following core characters. You switch between characters, and sometimes you're not even reading about particular characters. You're reading about major events. But if you're into history, and, and this is why I like the Tolkien mythology in general, is because unlike most mythol- mythological worlds, Tolkien actually has a total history for everything that happens. And so you can... All the stuff in the Lord of the Rings where you can kind of see there's a reference to something in the past, you can find that in the Silmarillion. So if you ever read the Lord of the Rings and wondered, what's he talking about there? You know, he's talking about some kind of historical event. You can read the Silmarillion and find out what it was. So anyway, before I go on any further, that's basically what the Silmarillion is all about. So if you've never read it before but you're interested, that's probably uh, something you should pick up and sooner or later I'm going to do a video on how I think the Silmarillion might be made into a movie or series of movies, so stay tuned for that eventually, Uh, but I'll wrap up here. So I hope that video wasn't too long, uh, but I hope you at least got something out of it. If you've never read the Silmarillion, hopefully now you at least have enough background to kind of get an idea of what people are talking about when they reference it. If you have read it before, but just needed a refresher on what happens, that's That'll fill you in on more or less the key details. So if you enjoyed the video, please like it and share it around. Please also subscribe. And if uh, if you prefer to follow me on Twitter, I'm at JRRTLore. Uh, otherwise, that'll be it for this video, and I hope to see you soon. No